Hello, and welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop, your one stop for board game news and reviews. This week, Steve and Elijah are going to catch up on all the board game news and give you a top five review. Welcome to One Stop Co-op Shop. Steve here with... Elijah. And today we're going to focus on an older game, The Grizzled. It's been a while since the two of us have been on a podcast together, so let's talk about what we've been up to. Let's talk about your hair, Steve. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> so we are in the midst of uh, Hurricane Dorian is off the coast. And actually, no, we're, we're, we're coming to you live from inside Dorian right now. Not really actually doing a whole lot, just trying to enjoy summer. It's winding down. So we did some road tripping. We actually took a trip up to D.C. and saw some stuff up there. So it's been a lot of fun. How about you? What have you been up to? Oh, with a recent holiday, went to the lake, had some fun there with the wife and kids. And other than that, recording some playthroughs. As you've seen on the channel, Orchard came up and Solar Storm should be up too. Awesome. Also recently, as we mentioned on the last podcast, Barrett from Meet Me at the Table has joined us in our one-stop co-op shop conglomeration. Jeez, it's expanding. It's expanding. Awesome. Very exciting. And Jason from Every Night's Game Night is also on our Slack, so... Please join us there if you want to have some fun chats. It's very active on that. Yeah, a lot of interesting discussions, thoughts on games, people's feedback, opinions, news, Kickstarter stuff, right? You got a lot of stuff going on in Slack. You name it, yeah. It's great. There's a lot of other content creators on there as well. So even if the one-stop co-op shop crew hasn't played the game, there may be some other content creators who have. So this podcast might sound a little bit different because Elijah and I are actually sitting across the table from each other for the first time. Normally we're in other parts of the city when recording this podcast, so this would be a little bit different for us. Something different fun, actually. So, oh, yeah. Cool. So Elijah and I here to review The Grizzled. This is a cooperative game, a short one, for two to five players, or there's a solo mode as well, where you're playing as soldiers in World War One. And in this game, there is a what they're calling a trial pile. And these this trial pile is a bunch of symbols you're trying to play into what they're calling No Man's Land, just open play area. And trying to play cards in such a way where you do not have more than three of any matching symbol or icon. If you can do that successfully enough and run out of cards in the trial pile, you can see the ending card, the peace card, and win the game. If you're unlucky enough to add morale cards to that trial pile, we can't get through it in fast enough time, then you'll see the monument card and lose the game. There's another way you can lose the game too, is if you get these what are called hard knocks in the game. And these are negative effects that you have to deal with throughout the, the scenario. But this game has a couple of expansions out there. The core game was just pretty basic with abstract missions you want on. The expansion, which I highly recommend, and that's honestly what we're going to be talking about today, is one that adds some, some thematics around the missions you go on. And then there's another set that came out, uh, Armistice Edition, which includes all the previous content and adds a campaign mode in it. Unfortunately, I don't have that set, so we won't be talking about that much, but it's pretty much the same thing we have been playing. So just from my perspective, the summary of this game is you have a deck of cards that you're working to get through to get to the end, right? And on those cards, you have icons, and we're trying to get rid of all the cards from our hands and work through that deck to win the game. That's exactly right. All the while, we're adding more cards to that deck at the end of every round, and that varies a little bit. And then you have challenges like... You're drawing more cards than normal uh -huh. uh, into your hand, and so it's very interesting. Exactly. Now, this game I would put squarely in the rank of cooperative, but you cannot share knowledge between each other, right? Or there's a limited set of knowledge that you're able to share with each other. Yes, that's correct. In this game, you actually cannot talk about anything in your hand at all. 
you can talk about strategies a little bit, but you can't use that to your advantage to give clues at what you may have. And that's what's interesting about this game. Um, it can be compared to some other games that we'll talk about in a little bit, but it's one of those games that if you could just talk, you could reveal so much and it would be so much easier, but that's what makes it kind of interesting. So a lot of fun. At the same time, if you could talk, it would almost defeat the game completely. Exactly. Because you would be one optimal play. You can discuss what it is and just you just execute the game. It wouldn't be any of that reading into what my, my fellow comrades at the table are doing why they're doing it Mm -hmm. and now for our thoughts on the game we're going to go into a five point review um so what steve and i do is we rank um five kind of points that we like about the game it could either be a pro or con and of course number five is has a very weak rating and number one is the strongest and so with that i'm just going to go ahead steve and jump into mine and number five would be the theme of this game is a war-themed game i mean when you look at this box on the shelf uh you know it's clearly war-torn cities we play as soldiers, and the theme is there is, is definitely war. You know, I, it could probably be reskinned or rethemed as something else, but this to me is actually a pro. Very weak. That's why it's number five. It I feel like there's a large audience of players or listeners that would probably pass by this on the shelf if they saw it. That really depends on the type of person you are and what you're looking for when you're at the game store, or you're shopping online, or you're buying for a friend or family. My view of this game is there's a solid game there, but this theme is like a pro for me as a wargamer, but I feel like it could be off-putting to people. I agree with that. I think the war theme tends to be something easily passable, exactly what you said. And I, at the same time, I don't feel like the war theme is heavily integrated into this game. So if you're not into that theme at all, I think you can still play this without it being a, a being off-putting to you at all. And I would totally agree. So my this is a... A pro for me because I don't mind war, but this is not something that when you're done, you're like, wow, what a slog through war. You know, honestly, folks, at the end of the day, it's almost pattern matching with kind of this war sort of look to the cards as it as it were. So, so yeah, that's my number five, Steve. I'd also mention that the artwork and the content of the cards could be a lot worse considering World War One. There were some pretty horrible things that happened. And this does a pretty good job at stepping back, making it abstract, and making it so that while you may wind up thinking about what happened in World War One, it's not in your face necessarily. For example, there are three icons in the game that you, you need to try to not match, and that was like a bullet, gas mask, and whistle. And like the gas mask for me definitely jumps out with some of the horrible practices that happened in World War One, but. It's literally just a symbol on a card. It's not like in my face. If I hmm. want to think about it, I can. If I don't want to think about those bad things, it's not a big deal. It's just a symbol on a card. Yeah, and there's certainly no gore or blood or anything like that. I mean, and even the artwork itself, uh, he was a cartoonist for a newspaper in France, I believe, Steve, right? That's correct. His, uh, Tignus is his name. And unfortunately, he lost his life in the Charlie Hebdo shooting back in 2015. But it's nice seeing his artwork lives on in this game. My number five, I'm going to start off with a con. And that is the conflicting game effects in this. So one thing we mentioned in our brief discussion of it is the concept of a hard knock. And in this game, you will be playing cards. And normally these cards have three different backgrounds on it. It could be snow, night, or rain. And then there's normally an icon on it as well. That's either the gas mask, whistle, or bullet. But in addition to these normal cards, there's some extra cards in there, and these are hard knocks. And what all they are, are is a card that will be placed in your player in front of you. 
and they all have some negative effect. Could be something as simple as, as oh, you can't talk anymore. Could be something as more interesting as, you must be the last person to withdraw from battle. And what that means is, as you're playing cards into the center row, at some point you can often choose to say you're done adding cards to that row and then back out or withdraw in this game. Well, if that's in front of you, everyone knows that you have to withdraw last. So now everyone has to take that in consideration. That's just one example of many different hard knocks. And there's a way to get rid of them by supporting you. Now, this is a really cool mechanic, the hard knocks themselves. But the problem in the game, I think, is sometimes you have a card that says, oh yeah, you have to be the last one to withdraw. Another one card says, oh yeah, you have to be the first one to withdraw. And there are rules in the game. It says that the most recent one takes precedence. But it's still kind of awkward. I wish there was a cleaner way of resolving when two hard knocks would directly conflict each other. And this is just me, uh, the straight up con, because it's just more overhead for someone to consider in this game. Yeah, I would agree. So some hard knocks, like you had mentioned, prideful, where you have to be the last person to leave the battle or withdraw. And then you might have another hard knock that says you cannot withdraw unless everyone else has withdrawn. And so it leads to this weird dichotomy or dynamic where it's like, what? How does this work? And I would agree with you on that, that. And then you have the precedence and the order, and it can get a little bit dicey on how that can be interpreted. It's not a huge deal because you can put the hard knocks in front of you with, like, always putting the most recent to your left and the, the, the later ones to the right. Mm. So it's not a huge deal. But still, it's just, it's a bump in the road on a relatively smooth game. Agreed. My number four is a pro, and that is the support tokens in this game. What I mean by this is that these are kind of interesting. There are little coffee mugs. And on the back side of them, they show a directional arrow with a, a number nearby. And so what that means is when you choose to withdraw from battle, you will at that point place one of these, these support tokens face down. The arrow will depict where you're going to pass your support token to. So for example, if I put one that points left, one space, I'm going to take this token and pass it to the person to my left, one, one chair over. This says two to my right, I'll pass it to the person to my right, two chairs over. You know, sitting around in a circle, for example. And then in this game, whoever receives the most support tokens will be able to refresh their special ability. Every player has a special ability that can ignore cards. And more importantly, they will be able to remove these hard knocks, which I mentioned earlier. And why I like the support tokens is it really adds a lot of short-term and long-term balancing of how you play these. For example, let's say like, okay, I, I know this person to my left really needs my support. I think everyone at the table is also thinking the same thing, but you really can't talk about this outright. You can talk about it after the fact, like, okay, I know that this person needs to get rid of stuff, but you can't plan like, hey, I'm going to play my, my left support token. Make sure you play your right support token. And how it really works is that person has to receive the majority of support tokens. So if everyone chooses to go left in a circle, well, then everyone just got one support token they, they pass around and nobody gets any benefits. And so you really have to like plan this out, like, do I send my support tokens in them now? And then if they get a big stack of support tokens, now they're going to have to automatically start sending them out to everyone else because you can't keep supporting the same person over and over again. You really have to share the load in this game. And it just works very naturally, and it has another level of strategy and think about the game. I really, really like how they implemented them. So one thing I'll add to that is the support tokens are randomized at the beginning of the game. And so you can get a mix of left, right, or right, right, or left, left. 
And what's really interesting about that is, for example, you may want to support the person to your right because they have some hard knocks in front of them and maybe they need to refresh their ability. But you look at your support tokens and they're both left. It creates this interesting dynamic. And so it's also kind of a hidden thing, right? We can't reveal. I can't tell you, Steve, hey, I'm going to support right. It's another kind of layer of this hidden information in the game that I really, really like. You have not only are they randomized, right, then they can pile up. Right, so if I go left and the, and the player to my right goes right, now right two tokens have went to one person. So now you'll have the most and I have less. And then those are going to shift throughout the game. And so you have this weird balance of left and rights going you know, several different ways. You'd have to play the game to kind of understand how it works exactly, but it's a really fun mechanic. What else is interesting is there are hard knocks or mechanics in the game that remove support tokens. And so you can actually whittle down and and have less ability to support other players with these tokens. And that can really change the game quite a bit. If you run out of like the pass to the right support tokens, well, now you're kind of SOL for the rest of the game. You really have to be careful when those hard knocks come out. In fact, that's probably one of my least favorite hard knocks. I mean, not not from how it's implemented in the game, just for the impact it has. Yeah. Whenever I see that pop out, like, okay, we have to get rid of that hard knocks as fast as possible. It can be devastating. It can be. But also, uh, that's another thing I want to mention too, these support tokens with these hard knocks, sometimes you have to support the person in time to win the game. Because one of the other loss conditions is is after the support phase, if anybody has more than three hard knocks in front of them, everyone loses the game. And so you can be sitting there with, oh yeah, this person has four in front of them. Everyone knows we have to support them and get rid of a couple of the hard knocks. But like Elijah said earlier, you may or may not be able to do that, and there's a lot of tension, like, well, what are you going to play? How can I play? I don't necessarily want to gang up on this one person, because maybe maybe I know that everyone's going to go support this one person. If I add another support token to them, it's going to be useless. But if I add this support token to someone else, they can then help again in the future. So it adds a very interesting dynamic. This is actually going to lead into my number four. I love that. The support tokens about the game creates a very interesting dynamic along with the speech tokens. My number four is a weak con. In a dual mode, right, so two players, there's a third part, a third player that's kind of like this AI, but it's like really dumb and it, it works like very passively. The way this works is they're not playing cards, right? They're not really a part of the game, but they do have support tokens. And so what you do is on their on the support phase, so on the support phase, we're basically randomizing their tokens and we flip one over. And I think it works okay, but I just think like with two players, it could be better. So for any um, couples out there who are playing, friends, you know, that's something to be aware of. That's my number four. It's a weak con that, you know, with this third party, the third player in the game, it's kind of, it creates something, but it, I feel like I could have done a little bit better. I'm not quite sure how, I'm not a genius, but I feel like it's, and um, it kind of dovetails on your point about the support tokens and kind of how they interact with that third player. Yeah, that's a good point. I do think this game is best three or more players. Uh, I will play two players. I think I, it doesn't bother me as much as what Elijah might be alluding to. I think it works fine, but it's just kind of added overhead and uninspiring how it's being integrated in the game. Yeah, it's my number. Four. It's a weak con for me, but I and, and and it's not game ending by any right or game breaking by any stretch of the imagination. But I just feel like with kind of the card play that's there and the uniqueness of the hard knocks and sort of the mission, like I feel like a little bit more time could have been put into that to make it a little bit more interesting. But I would agree, three or more, this game's really gonna have, you're gonna have a lot of fun. 
I will say there are multiple ways of approaching the two-player mode as well. It depends on what expansion you buy, but there's actually a couple different variations of how you can approach that system, including a solo play mode as well, which there's a couple ways of how to approach it. I'm going to jump into my number three, and my number three is a pro, and this is a big pro, I think. That's going to be the missions. So what I meant earlier is during the core game, missions were just an arbitrary thing you did. What I mean by that is, in this game, one person will be the leader. They're in charge of dealing out cards from the trial pile to everyone else. The goal of the game is to empty the trial pile. So you really want to deal out as many of these cards as possible. The leader's job is to choose a number and everyone has to get at least that, that number, whatever it happens to be. And that's what it was. It was an arbitrary number you chose and dealt the cards. And that was really uninspiring for a lot of people. In the expansion, at your orders, now they added these mission cards. And this changes the game quite a bit. So what you do is, as your leader, you'll draw two of these missions cards, pick one and put the other back on top. And what these missions cards do is they vary between easy, normal, or hard difficulties. And they will either help you or detriment you in that specific round of play. It could be something like, oh, by the way, gas masks don't matter. Meaning everyone can play as many gas mask symbols as they want. They will never lose due to the gas masks. Or it could be something as horrible as like, oh, by the way, now you have a tank to deal with. And to get rid of the tank, you have to play a number of snow symbols uh, over the next few rounds to get rid of it. And that one will persist between each round. In addition to that, on the bottom of the card, it tells you exactly how many cards you have to deal to everyone. And this is the minimum number of cards. So now you have this interesting dynamic. Do I choose a, a harder card to play? That's going to give us only a few cards we have to deal out. So maybe we can empty our hands, but now we have to deal with a bigger threat. Or do I go the other way around? Right? Do I deal with the easier threat, but now I have to deal more cards? Or maybe I choose the easier threat and just load more cards in everyone's hand as leader. And as leader, you are in charge of what, how many cards you deal out. It's not something that you really uh, cooperate or collaborate with. It's just what a leader chooses. Everyone has to, has to deal with their consequences. I like what you're mentioning. Um, so one interesting thing is it, it allows a little bit of strategizing and planning. As a mission leader, say you draw those two top cards and you want to take the bad one now, but you know the gas masks right are on the top. That allows you to kind of plan for that next round that, that's coming and it kind of you change your strategy a little bit about what you're playing. Like I can't cooperate right verbally across the table but we know what that mission is, and so you can kind of like, I don't know, silently, collectively sort of agree on kind of like, hey, we know this is what we're going to be working towards. So it really creates a really interesting dynamic in the, with the ability that you're able to draw to see one and then pick one. And then, like you said, uh, can vary the difficulty a little bit. So Exactly. It's the whole point of when you put that card back on top of the deck. If it goes around the table and no one's picked that card, because at some point everyone's seen it. Then everyone has on the same page. Is like, okay, I know when I this card's coming up, everyone can stock up on that card or whatever it is. Very true. The other thing I'll mention about missions I like a lot is this is a very easy way of adjusting the difficulty of the game. You always play with the same number of missions, but the ratio of easy, normal, and hard mission cards you add in there can vary the game significantly. And it's listed right on the card, right? So easy, medium, so you can include more of the easy cards, more of the hard, or more of the medium. Exactly. Yep, you can just have you want. It does have recommend setup, of course, in the rule book. So I like that one, Steve. My number three. This is interesting. So for me, I actually this is what I really enjoy about the game, and I don't know how to say it, so I'm just gonna say it because it's a very common t buzzword is swingy. So I guess we could also say unpredictability, sort of that hidden dynamic. What I mean by this is, 
The hard knocks can be really devastating, but I kind of like that. I kind of like that it throws curves at you and you have this whole master plan, but it kind of creates, right, at least for in this instance, the theme, you have a little bit of that fog of war. So here's another example of what I would call the fun and unpredictability is there is a mechanic in the game called traps. So for example, you might have a card in front of you that has a rainy background. So that is one of the patterns we're trying to match with a bullet. But down on the bottom, there's this little icon, and it looks like an empty card, and that indicates that it's a trap. What this means is when I play this card into the middle play area, I have to blindly take the top card of the trial deck and place it into the middle play area. So this creates an interesting dynamic. So say there was already two rain cards, two rain backgrounds, and a, maybe a gas mask and a whistle. So we can't get another rain card. But if I play a card, right, and it has a trap, I'm like really gambling on flipping over that top card and hoping it doesn't have an icon that may match. That's really fun because I just like when do you play that card and when do you not? And then you kind of have this social thing like, okay, I'm about, do you guys want to lose because I'm going to play this trap? Like, uh, so that's for me is a lot of fun. The dynamic of, of kind of the unpredictability, as I'll call it, of the, the, the blindness of the support tokens, right? So at the beginning of the game, you're dealt randomly and they go left and right. And we can sort of, we know who we need to support at the table, but we can't like look at the tokens. So I just love kind of this. So it could be swingy because you can get stuck with all right support tokens and you can flip over and you can pick two missions that just are terrible and you can play a trap that instantly right ruins the whole rhythm you had going and it can be outside of what i would call predictability of other games but i enjoy it normally when people use the term swinging this is in a very negative context yes but for you is this also true for me swinging can be a positive thing because i guess it can represent the ability for the game to throw curveballs at you so, you know, the, the, all definitions run the gamut, right, in our language. And so for me, swinging can vary from there's no way to mitigate it. And so it's just not possible, right, a game-breaking card that you flip over and everyone takes 100 damage or something. That is swinging. But you can also have swinging in, in maybe what I would more accurately term just kind of that variability and the blind variability in the game. So maybe that's a better term here for my number three. But to me, it's a definite pro. I love this game that it has so much stuff that's like, what's around that corner? How do I work with you? What about my tokens that I'm not sure? And it just, I really, really like that about this game. Would you say the swinginess is, is in the game, but it's not a high value amount of how much it swings? Right? What do you mean high value? Meaning that like this bad thing came out, we we're doing pretty good. And now I have to deal with this, but it's not necessarily game breaking is what you're saying. So I would agree that that is true. Um, I think if you are not planning and strategizing with as much as you can, that it's possible for you to, say, play a trap card and it will ruin your game. Because you kind of know when you're at that edge of like, I don't know if this would be a good idea. So for example, again, say you got two rain cards and you have two whistles out there. It's probably not a good idea to play a trap, right? We don't know. But if you only have one rain card and one whistle and one gas mask, probably a safe bet. So I feel like most of the time when that happens, you know, irrespective of some things, for example, the support tokens, I don't really get to pick my tokens, right? So, but again, that can be mitigated by the way that the dynamic of the support works at the table. So I like it. It's a, for me, it's a huge, it's a huge pro. I, I'm okay with dice in my world. I'm okay with unpredictability and random, random, uh, just as long as it's not an unfun mechanic or a, what I would call a game over mechanic. I would agree with you. I feel like when I play this game, there are times where 
I almost feel like I'm getting the game under my control, like in the middle of the game. Like, okay, cool. I've emptied out my hand. I'm pushing. I got a good rhythm going. I think I can dump my hand next turn. That's going to really help us. And all of a sudden, one of these traps flips badly for us. And now we have three matching symbols, which means we failed the mission. And we have to take all those cards and put them back in the trials deck, which means we basically wasted a whole round. Or Harnox came out and like, oh man, this is going to really ruin what I was planning to do. I need to manage this somehow. And that's what adds to this ebb and flow of the game where we're like, okay, I've got control. I'm doing really well. Oh, wow. Now I've got this thing that just kind of threw a monkey wrench in it. But I've, I've never felt in this game that it hasn't been a sweeping moment where like, okay, I'm just going to take the sweep this game up and try again. No, I always felt like, yeah, I can, I think I can get through this. In like I said before, even fail things or I have struggle, struggle that it's not normally a game breaking moment where I'm going to lose the game because this one card came out. And conversely, I would say if you're losing the game due to these mechanics, you probably had it coming. <laughs> I mean, seriously, right? Because again, you're gam you're probably a gambler. If you're like me, you're like, Hey, it's just a game, you know, um, let's sweep it and do it again. But I love it. It's fun for me. My number two is a pro and that is the cooperation in this game. I found the cooperation in this game pretty engaging, and it's interesting because, as we've said it before, you don't really talk much in this game. In fact, one fun way of playing this game is to have a fun story when you give a speech. And a speech token is just a generic speech token. You can actually uh, thematically get into it. Or if you play a card about bullets, be like, don't be afraid, my fellow fellow brothers, we were, these bullets won't scare us in the middle of the night. And it's a card with a knight in the background with a bullet on it. And it, that can be fun to like embellish it a little bit. But outside of that, you can't really talk strategy. You can't talk about what you have in your hand or anything like that. But I can read into what the other players at the table have based upon their actions. And a good example tying to our previous discussion earlier, let's say my one of my other players at the table has a lot of trap cards in their hand. Well, they notice that there's a lot of doubles out there of matching pairs. They know if we get three of a kind, we fail. And so they might choose at that point to withdraw from the mission. It might be a weird situation where like, well, why are you withdrawing from the mission? You have like four or five cards in your hand. I feel like you should still play something. But the fact that they, they're not telling me what's in hand, but the fact that they're withdrawing and I see what's on the table, I already have information just from that. So it's a weird cooperation. Like, okay, they might have some traps. I'm So then when it comes around to me picking a mission, or me choosing how I'm going to deal out the cards or what cards I'm going to play, I can choose to play cards differently the next round to maybe help them empty their hand. And this comes in play throughout the whole game. There's a lot of little moments where we're like, why did, why did this person do this one action? And while they can't talk about it, you can really infer or understand what's going on. The other thing really interesting about this game is when you have a hard knocks that adds a symbol permanently in play. For example, some hard knocks say, it's just a picture of a whistle. That means while you're in the game, while you're part of that round, the whistle is added to the middle of no man's land. Well now, as a form of cooperation, I might choose to withdraw before everyone else. And when I do that, my whistle is no longer contributes to that no man's land. And so this will also help another way of how we can work together in subtle ways of whether I'm in the game or out of the game and how many cards my hand and what I'm playing. It's very, very interesting how this works. I would agree. So what's your number two, Elijah? Well, this one isn't very specific about mechanics or anything else. It's just very broad. But to me, my number two is a pro value. So for the cost of this game, the ease of setup, teardown, the rule book, uh, the size of the box, the fun you're going to have at the table, the depth of play, complexity, the curveballs you're going to get, it's, it's just awesome. So I mean, 
there's a lot of other games out there that are going to offer that uh, running through the woods, right? Growing your character. Maybe you have other sports games or maybe even more abstract or simple games or party games. But I feel like the value in this box is tremendous. I will say I feel you the expansion's a must. I, you could probably look up what the expansion adds in house rule, some mechanic or, you know, house rule to introduce some dynamic, uh, you know, see to the um, missions. But I... I love the replay. I think the replayability is high here. And no amount of shuffling and things, you're, you're still going to get curveballs. And then you, again, best laid plans are uh, can go to the wayside depending on, you know, hey, I'm going to support you. I guess not. I have two lefts. And so it just creates this really fun dynamic. And it's not too much, right? So it's not a brain burner. And just to get to the table and have a lot of fun, uh, to me, it's a very approachable, high value, high value game. While I don't own the game, the Armistice Edition, I will say that the value for that looks pretty good too, actually, because it comes with painted miniatures, which is honestly completely unnecessary for a game like this, <laughs> but the fact that they decided to include that for this type of game is very appreciative, because I am definitely not a painter. <laughs> all my miniatures are very, very bland, so I'm sorry for all you painters out there. <laughs> you probably <laughs> stop listening to podcasts right now, but I, I love painted minis, I just, I, I'm not skilled in that, <laughs> so... Finally, our number one. My number one is a pro, and that is the game tension. I think this game has a lot of tension in it, in the sense that as I'm playing, I know what the goal is right out of the bat. The goal is really simple. Run through the trial deck to see the bomb card. And at the end of every round, you have to add cards from the morale track, as in the game thematically, morale drops. So you'll take minimum three cards, maybe more, because you can add more cards depending on how many cards are left over in everyone's hand, and put that into the trials deck. And so they have this ebb and flow where like, okay, cool, yeah, we're, that Charles deck's getting smaller and smaller, we're getting close to the end, and then we get into a situation where they throw a curveball, and now like, oh great, everyone has like four cards in their hand, now we have to add a lot more cards back into Charles deck, now that deck jumped back up. So now we have to work our way down again, but as we're playing this game, we're always pulling cards from the morale deck, so that's, that's getting smaller and smaller no matter what you do, and that is the end game timer. So you're watching the end game timer tick down and watching the ebb and flow of the trial decks getting smaller and bigger as, you, as you're racing to the end. And it sounds kind of dumb because I'm literally just watching these decks of cards fluctuate. But for me, there's a lot of tension in that. We're like, oh man, I, we're doing really good. We have to push hard. We have to push hard. That's a really bad situation. I know, but we, I really want to give everyone an extra card because I think if we can do this, we'll break through that, that difficulty we're in right now. And oh man, this guy has another hard knocks. We we really have to manage this and get up, get rid of that. Or or we have a speech. Can someone can someone somehow figure out how to play the speech? And a speech is so, uh, something you can play in the game where you can discard cards from every other person's hand. If you choose the right uh, symbol, and just the whole package itself has a lot of tension for me. So I love it, Steve. It kind of smells of my number three. Uh, just that tension and that fun sort of unpredictability. But I would agree with you that. In the very beginning, when you have this huge deck of cards, you're like, oh my gosh, right? It's no big deal. We got this. And as you start going, things get crazy. You, I mean, holy hard knocks, Batman, right? And then the support tokens, I'm stuck with all rights, or maybe I don't. I only have one because of hard knock. Or I, everyone has to, we have to back out early because of my, I'm prideful or whatever. But that deck will whittle down. And then you have that ebb and flow of the missions, like, hey, let's get more cards. And you get to a point where, wow, we're getting down there, right? Not a lot left. And you can almost get kind of risky or stupid because it's like, well, pfft, there's like two cards left and you can't. This game is always going to keep you on that edge of your seat and that tension of like, well, wait a minute, like you had said, right? More trials are coming back and the morale and stuff. So 
I would totally agree with you. I love that kind of the that part of the game is just really um, immersive, intense. I love it. So now for my number one, it is a pro, and for me, it is the player interaction or complete lack thereof, but not. And so you had hit this one, Steve, and I was trying to be very silent because I just wanted to jump up and down and scream and say, yes, yes, my number one. So what I love about this game and what really makes it fun is exactly what you were saying earlier. So, right, I'm gonna play a card and you're looking at me like, why would you play that? And I'm thinking, because I can't play anything else. And so I just love that kind of like player interaction that's subtle. And then, right, you can look at the hard knocks, and so it's like the co-op. So, hey, we need to clearly support this person. Um, he has to refresh his ability, or, you know, again, you, you have the lost condition of having too many, too many hard knocks in front of you. And so it's like we all are in agreement at the table that we need to support this person during the support token phase, right? But we can't communicate. So there's like this weird dynamic at the table that's like clearly everyone pick right or left, depending on where you're at. And it's super fun because you can't say anything. And then, like you said, you're right, you know, you're going to pick up cards and someone may lay a whistle and it's like, yeah, don't play any more whistles because I <laughs> won't be able to do anything. And so I just love what I'm calling player interaction, but it's weird because you can't talk. Right. So it's just this fun, really cool dynamic that makes the game just amazing. This is echoed in other games of similar vein. And to me, that's what makes this game super cool. So you have the pattern matching and everything else, right? But in the end, like... It's so fun to sit at the table and go, why did you play that card? What are you thinking? Or I know what you're thinking, but you can't say it. And so there's this weird, that weird dynamic. I think that's what really makes this game because it's it's really not about matching symbols and playing card through and trying to avoid playing it through any kind. I mean, that is the game, of course, and you're trying to get this run out of the deck. But what really makes this deck is the points that Elijah's pulling out here. The This subtle cooperation, the subtle tension, the, this, this, how do I communicate this to the players at the table without like actually going and saying it? You do this not in body language or, or science or anything like that. You do it with actual gameplay. Like The choices you make in the game communicate a lot to other players. And this may not become apparent in your first few plays of the game, but after a while, it really starts standing out and winds up being quite fun. It's super awesome. Uh, speech tokens are a good example as well, right? So we get a lot of rain out there or whistle, and it's like, I'm going to play a speech token, so I want everyone at the table to get rid of whistles. Now, am I calling out whistles because that's what I have? Am I calling out whistles because that's what's in the play area? Do I feel that that's what the players might have? And so it's just, it's really like this fun thing because even that subtle hint is like, I have whistles, guys. Or I know you have whistles because no one's played anything. And so it's just a super fun thing where you're just kind of like trying to get inside each other's head and be cooperative, right? And so it is pattern matching, but there's just so much more going on at the table. That's super fun. So it's my number one. It's a pro player interaction. I love it. So we've gone through our five points. Let's jump into our final thoughts of the game. When this game first came out, it, it was quite a bit of buzz. I think it was at BGGCon when this was somewhat popular. And it was a number of years ago when, when it was published. And I heard about it. It sounded kind of, I don't know, interesting. Wasn't really sold on it. But due to all the buzz, I kind of bought into it. And was like, you know what, let's try it out. And oh my gosh, I, I actually liked it quite a bit. It was really fun. I even liked it without the, the specific missions. But when they came out with an expansion that added some thematic flair to the missions, this 
I, in my mind, really completed the, the game for me. And I won't recommend this game without buying that expansion at your orders. I think you have to get both of them to really have the full experience because while you can see a little bit of what the gameplay is in just the core game, at your orders is just one of those must-buy expansions for sure. This is a game that will always remain in my collection. I'm actually kind of hoping at some point it may make it worn down so I can have an excuse to buy the Armistice Edition with the really nice miniatures and <laughs> campaign play. But I can't really justify the cost now because it basically has, I have everything now. I don't want to necessarily rebuy it at this point. But it's such a small box. It's so quick to play. It has this, it does something that a lot of other games in my collection don't do. It's it's a great game. It's a great filler. It's not something I would necessarily pull out for a focus of a game night. But if you want to play a game, wait for people to show up, it's a great one to pull to the table. I definitely recommend The Grizzled. So for my final thoughts on the game, I feel like I've covered them pretty well in my five. It's The theme is a little can be a little bit thrown off for some people. And I'm going to be honest, I think most people are probably passing by this game because of the box. This is a very small box, and you're probably going to miss it at the game store. And when you see the cover with soldiers and you flip it around to the back, you're like, meh. But I'm going to tell you, if you can play this through a friend or a trade or at your local game store, give it a try. And I would say don't be put off by what might be the initial perceived complexity because it's actually there's not it's not that complex. So you got the theme. Uh, definitely play with three people or more if you can for sure. If you're okay with like crazy stuff being thrown at you where you're not able to manipulate every dial in the game and have some things outside your control, you're going to like this game. For me, I love it. If you're okay with uh, some replayability, right, I mean, it's going to be here. You'd have to play this a lot, I feel, to really wear it out, just by the very nature of the game. And then if you love that sort of weird social dynamic at the table, where you're all kind of like, you know, trying to get inside each other's heads and think about what to do, this game is for you. So, I mean, I think you should at least give it a try. So we reviewed The Grizzled, but I think it'd be fun to have a discussion topic based upon The Grizzled. And one thing that jumps out of this game is the fact that you really can't talk about the strategies you're watching hand. And there's a number of other games out there that do this as well, so I think it might be kind of fun to touch base on how this game compares to those in, in our opinions. One of the other games that has a mechanic similar to this, it's a little bit different vein of it, is Mysterium. In Mysterium, one player plays as a ghost and they cannot talk at all through the whole game. But there are other players at the table can discuss what's going on. And so the ghost is trying to provide clues doing by playing cards uh, subtly to each player. And the rest of the team is trying to discuss and figure out what's going on. It's not quite the same vein because in that game, the ghost can hear what everyone else is talking about. And so they can talk about whatever they want. And he can use that information to help play his, his cards. It's a little bit different in this one because in Grizzled, you can't talk at all about any of the, the contents of the cards or what's going on. So Steve, what sort of curveballs or unpredictability is thrown at the players in Mysterium? Like for example, in Grizzled, we have the tokens and the card flipping. From the player's perspective in Mysterium, what is the dynamic in that game for that? Or even the uh, ghost? I don't think there are any curveballs per se, other than the fact that it's one of those party games where, oh yeah, he gave me this card obviously because it means this one guy or this one location is my, my answer. And the ghost is like screaming and turning like, no, no, it's not what I meant at all. I meant this one other icon on the card means this. And so that's probably only curveball in that. Otherwise, it plays pretty, pretty straightforward. Another example of this, which isn't released yet, and I will do another podcast on this soon, 
is Final Hour from Fantasy Flight Games. This is their new Arkham Horror uh, game, which kind of like a approach of, I don't know, like Pandemic crossed with Clue in the Arkham universe. The non-talking part of the game is you're looking at a card in your hand, and there's a top and bottom of the card. The top is normally good, and the bottom is normally bad. And then you're taking that card, putting it face down, and putting a priority number on top of that. And what that means is the players with the highest priority will do the top part of the card, and the players with the lowest priority will do the bottom part of the card. But during this process, you cannot talk about anything. And so you will see, in turn order, who plays what. And you may get an idea of like, wow, the person played a two on their card. That means means that maybe the bottom of the card is like super bad. They really want to make sure they get the they get to go first, or they play a, a higher number so they won't go last. And so there's some reading in that regard. I'll have more to talk about this game in the future on our podcast, but that's another system that has it. I I have some issue with it because I think it takes it too far on the non-communication standpoint. But we'll talk about it in the future. So I'm going to mention another game. It's not co-op, but uh, most of you may have heard about it. Some of our listeners might be new and, have n- and are new to board gaming. Dixit. Um, so it's a kind of an imaginary game. Uh, basically, you have these cards with different artwork on them, and they're very imaginative. And the idea in the game is you're all racing for points to get to the end, and points are based on your ability to guess what other players have played for their card. Now, when you pick a card, you act it out, or you can do anything at the table to kind of indicate a clue on the card. So you could sing, you could say a statement, you could get up and bend over, you can do whatever you want, right, to kind of give some clue. And then everyone else at the table picks what they feel might represent. And then we all play our cards blindly, face down, shuffle them, and we flip them over. Now points are awarded based on the player's ability to pick the person who played the card, right? And so there's this interesting dynamic of how you guess the cards and things. So it's a little bit of this social interaction going at the table. So let's talk about the mind. It's basically a deck of cards, 1 through 100. You shuffle these cards and you deal out a certain number to players based on the number of rounds that you've played in the game. And the whole objective of this very simple game is to play your cards in ascending order. So from 1 to 100, we all need to play the cards out of our hand, face up on the table, and we can't play them out of order. So for example, I might have 10 and 20. Someone else at the table might have 17 and 99. So we need to get those cards in ascending order without communicating in any way. So it leads to a really interesting dynamic at the table where you're trying to communicate to your fellow players what cards you have. Now imagine the spread, 1 to 99. I'd like to clarify it's 1 to 100. The main system in which you communicate in the mind is by body language. Am I giving on the same synchronicity with a time? So you're not necessarily counting that game, but you're trying to feel for when it's right to play certain cards and coupling that with... Is this person grabbing a card right now? Are they near the table? Or, hey, did they just get up and leave and go get a drink of water or something? And if they got to the table, that's pretty strong body language. They have some high cards and won't be playing anytime soon. As opposed to someone who's, like, hanging out the card right now and trying to read you who has the lower card between the two of us. So that gets pretty fun. It's fun when you have numbers that are close and you get it right. Because it's really exciting. Like, yeah, I read you exactly right. And even if you mess that up, you kind of get the point of like, well, they were close anyway. He kind of brushed underneath the rugs. So it kind of has this fun, like, weird dynamic in that sense. But it's really simple to teach, and it's gone over really well with a lot of people. So this is a game you could bring to a holiday event, a family gathering, a party, friends, and you're going to be able to teach this game and pull it out in no time flat, and people are going to love it, except me. <laughs> 
That's basically exactly what happened when I brought the mind over to Elijah's house. <laughs> I can understand the appeal of this game. I can understand how it'd be entertaining. And what really is a miss for me with the mind is there's almost no ability to strategize because the spread of the numbers is so large and the ability to control, communicate, or in any way have that within any sort of control or any kind of factoring is so irrelevant and silly that it's almost a non-game for me. And so that's what actually makes this a game because it's not really a game. And that's why it's called The Mind. I think what you're getting at, if I can read into this a little bit, is your way, your methods of communicating is basically via body language and this internal clock, which you really can't communicate. The only way you communicate the clock is by playing multiple games and seeing if everyone winds up agreeing in some fashion by failing or succeeding. That's really what it is. So the only other way of communicating really is your body language. And maybe that's just not your type of thing or enough information for you. We've had some interesting ways to communicate that. People getting up from the table, you might have somebody who kind of rotates their cards a certain way to indicate something. And I will tell you, you know, if you've ever finished someone's sentence or picked out the same flavor of ice cream, it's like, whoa, cool. This game can give you that, right, if you play it. But it's not really a game. I mean, you could get a 52 deck of cards and dictate that hearts are this and spades and you could play you know without anything so the depth of the game is not enough for me like i feel like there could be a little bit more that would just make it a little bit more interesting i can totally see the appeal i understand why everyone loves this game for me the body language and the interaction at the table is not enough to make it fun granted you don't waste a lot a lot of time when you play this while my thoughts don't necessarily align to to you in all all regards, I do agree somewhat to that. Like for me, I think the mind has a place. Now, if you were to ask me, do I want to play the mind or do I want to play the grizzled? It's no contest. I will always choose the grizzled. There's way more to it. It's got a theme, even though the theme's kind of pasted on. It's kind of light. I like that subtle communication. There's a lot more ways of communicating that way rather than just. Body language. And body language is fine. It's a fun skill to develop. I feel like there's not enough focus on that in, honestly, things we do in life. And having a game that focuses on that, it has a way of developing that skill, it's it's a nice thing to have. Nice thing to actually kind of read people. And it's kind of, it's kind of a fun social experiment. And I think if you were looking for a system where you don't communicate, I will definitely recommend the Grizzled over the mind, especially for people who are gamers right i think if i was going to walk up to my in-laws my parents i would not recommend the grizzle generally and i would probably push more than mine though i've had really good luck playing the grizzle with my father-in-law and he's not he's not a gamer at all but he is someone who enjoys history and even though this doesn't have a strong historical theme on it he actually enjoys the grizzle a lot just because the challenge level is there he's actually never won the game with me and mm. it's been really fun like okay you have that grizzle game again? Can can we play it? I we have we have to win on this level. How do how do we beat it? And so that's been really fun. I mean, you can s- still get that through something like the mind as well. Saying like, hey, can, can we really get to level twelve on this? I don't know. There's just more to the game. I should clarify some of my comments, Steve. So I'm going to follow up with you. The game is really cheap, so it's not going to break the bank. It's tiny. It's fun. It's something you can bring out and have a lot of fun put away really quickly. I guess I can, like I said, I can see the complexity. I just felt every time I've played. 
I was left with feeling that the loss was more out of my control than within my control. And I mm. don't feel like it was due to my lack of reading people. So I'm very good at reading social cues and people. And I felt like more that the, there's just not enough depth to communicate that the spread of your cards and kind of what you have. Now, granted, losing is no big deal, right? You can just, This is a game you can sweep and shuffle and go right away. So this is a game that you owe it to yourself to play. You're probably going to have a bigger audience that's going to enjoy this game than the Grizzled. For me personally, I like the depth and the social cues in the Grizzled more. Grizzled actually supports uh, five players, and the mind is only four. So, um, But, you know, again, some people are going to be thrown off by the Grizzled's theme and just some of the complexity in there. And the mind is literally, you could go down the street and just t tell anybody and you would teach it. And it's just, and it, they'd probably have a lot of fun. So I, I do agree. For me personally, I like the creativity in Dixit better. So I know this is not a co-op game, but I like the variety of the artwork. I'm a big fan of art and I appreciate artistic talent. And I like, so like Salvador Dali is my favorite artist. And I love the artwork on the cards. I like the ability to act or kind of do anything you want. But then you all come together and you have to figure out what, right? And so that's what I like about the Grizzle, for example, when we're done with a round, why did you play that whistle and this and that? There's some stuff you can say, well, clearly, and other stuff you can't because you still have those in your hand. When I play Dixit, one favorite thing we love to do is kind of why did you give the clue that you did for the card? And why did you play that card for this? And like, well, here, this art, you know, and this and that. With the mind, there's really none of that. You can't really, there's no post sort of play like, hey, you have a little bit, right? I can play this card up here. I got away. But for example, one person getting up and walking away. Do they do that from the 80s to 90s? Do they do that if it's above 50? Do you leave it on the table? Ooh, fun. Um, that's a little shallow for me, but I can totally see the appeal. And it is a game that, again, it's so easy to play, so cheap, uh, so easy to teach. You owe it to yourself to play. And with that, let's end this week's episode. But before we go, I'd like to thank some of our Patreon sponsors. Thank you, Dave Morthimer, Nate Schultz, and Joseph Orzo. All co-op lovers, we really appreciate your support. It means a lot to us. And with that, join us next week when Mike and Peter cover a game, and we'll see you at the next stop. Thanks for listening to another episode of the One Stop Co-op Shop podcast. Please check out our YouTube channel at One Stop Co-op Shop. If you want to reach out to us, the best place to talk to us all is on the Slack. See the show notes for details. Also, you can support us on Patreon check out patreon.com slash one stop. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week with another top five list. I'll cover... Apparently trying to learn how to speak again. Um. Oh, look at that. I think it's got an email from Peter. I think he just said, wait, Yep, you're off the podcast. <laughs> <laughs>